0: Good morning. My name is Ken. Today's reading comes from Acts, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Please follow along in your own Bibles, or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's Acts, chapter 16, starting with verse 19. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians, Of children in the third through the fifth grade. You're invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Common. It's going to be upstairs in either corner. As you're able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. (laughs) When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to either accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas, they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly. There was such a violent earthquake that the very foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors, they flew open at everyone's chains, they came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, no, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer, he called for lights. He rushed in and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, parents and guardians of children, third through fifth grade, you are invited to escort your kids to Kids Commons. It's going to be at the back room. Good morning. Um, My name is Matt. It's great to see
1: you here this morning and worship with you. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. This morning we are continuing our sermon series called Jubilee, Recalibrating, Recalibrating for the Common Good. This week we're in Acts 16, as you just heard Ken read for us so wonderfully. Paul and Silas, followers of Jesus, were arrested, they're beaten, they're thrown into prison for breaking the law. And it's a story that highlights, I think, one of our core values here at Haverhill Commons. It is our commitment to solidarity. So solidarity is our word of the day. So solidarity, everybody say with me, solidarity, good. What is solidarity? The the definition, the dictionary defines it as uh, unity or agreement of feeling or action. Unity and agreement of feeling or action, especially among individuals with common interests or common responsibilities. One of the reasons that our name here is Haverhill Commons Church is it's uh, arising out of this sentiment, this idea that we as a church are united by common interests, namely Jesus, and also united by common responsibilities, uh, loving others in Jesus' name. So solidarity here originates with Jesus. We say it this way, uh, our definition here at our church is awakened by Christ's compassion, So awakened by Christ's compassion, this is the recalibration piece, this is the sensitivity, our awareness of how much Jesus loves us, and then how much Jesus loves everybody. Awakened by that compassion, we share one another's burdens, meaning we carry hard things together, we carry our burdens, and then we put love into action. So we do something to help. This is our definition of solidarity. Awakened by Christ's compassion, we share one another's burdens, and we put love into action. This morning, as we quiet our hearts before the Lord, as we typically do, I want you to consider that starting point, the awakened by Christ's compassion part. When you've struggled, when your life has gotten heavy, how have you experienced Christ's care for you? How have you experienced Christ's compassion? Because right now, even, Christ's compassion is for you. So take a moment in this moment to consider the ways that Christ's compassion is for you in this moment. Let's take a moment. Lord Jesus, I'm thankful for your compassion for each of us, for your care for us, your love for us. In whatever ways, in the myriad of ways that people in this room are internally feeling and sensing and are aware of your compassion, I thank you for all of those vehicles, your spirit, your church, friendship, your word. Thank you for the ways you communicate to us that you do care for us. Help us to be awakened by that and through that this morning. It's in your name we pray, amen. So two real life moments for you. Moment one. Years ago, when I was a high school teacher, one of my colleagues came into my room before the start of school, and she was visibly distraught, upset. Her makeup was running, tears were streaming. She was just a total wreck um, before school. So I was like, like, what's wrong? What's wrong, Deb? And she said that her dog had just died that morning. Her constant companion, she loved that dog, and it was a huge loss for her. So she was coming in to ask if I would drive her to the vets so that she could say her last goodbyes. I have greed, of course, and we got some other teachers to cover our respective classes, and I drove with her and stayed with her all morning as she grieved the loss of her pet. Moment two. The twins are three months old, so there they are. That's, this, is the, this is the morning I'm talking about. They're three months old, so that's a little bit older than Sylvia, which is not that old. It's uh, Griffin's 21 months old, so three, two three months old, a 21-month old. Um, we're about to catch a flight to Missouri (laughs) and uh, two beleaguered parents, three diaper-wearing active infants who don't like sitting still and who are never going to do this, especially not on an airplane, they will never do this moment ever. They will not be laying down sleeping peacefully. They will never, ever do that on a plane. So we're staring down the barrel of a a three-and-a-half-hour flight crammed into a tight space with with a hundred other people. And we are doing our best song and dance to keep them entertained, to keep them calm, to just keep them quiet so that the rest of the passengers on the plane do not have to endure what I'm afraid that they're going to endure. A couple hours in, things are pretty rough, <laughs> to be honest with you, um, and a guy comes over to us, and he puts his hand on my shoulder, and I am bracing myself for a snarky comment about how we need to control our kids and how we need to keep it down, and we're like those people on the plane. And he asks me, he goes, twins? Yeah, Twins. And he says, us two, you're doing a good job. And then he walked away. Two moments, similar in some ways, right? In both moments, a person is struggling, and in both moments, another person is coming alongside to support and help that first person, but there are some indifferences in these two scenarios. When my teacher friend grieved, I saw her grief, and I felt bad for her, but I was not feeling the same feelings she was feeling. I hadn't lost my dog. I didn't even have a dog. I felt sorry for her, but I didn't feel sadness with her. On that plane, when the guy said, us too, I knew that he knew what it felt like to be a parent of multiple infants at the same time. He had some sense of what I was feeling in that moment. Two moments, and I think they highlight the subtle difference, the subtle but important difference, between sympathy and empathy. In the words of Dr. Nicola Davies, She says, quote, imagine being at the bottom of a deep, dark hole. Peer up to the top of the hole and you see some of your friends and family waiting for you, offering you words of support and encouragement. This is sympathy. They want to help you out of the pit you have yourself in. This can assist you, but not quite as much as a person who is standing beside you, a person who is in the hole with you and can see the world From your perspective, this is empathy, sympathy, empathy. When my friend lost her dog, I had sympathy for her. I saw her suffering, and I wanted to help. When I flew on that plane, that dude had empathy with me. He had been in the pit. His words, you're doing a good job, meant so much to me because he knew the darkness of that pit that I was in. So at the risk of oversimplification, sympathy is when you're feeling for someone. And empathy is when you're feeling with someone. Sympathy is when you're feeling for someone. And empathy is when you're feeling with someone. Both good emotions, both positive and helpful emotions, but they're different. We're actually hardwired to have empathy, to feel with someone. When babies are very young, if they hear another baby crying, they will start to cry, even though they're not hurt. They're not faking it. Actually, the same chemicals are being released in their brains as being released in the brains of the injured child. It's called mirroring, and babies mirror the feelings of those around them. And it's not just babies. Have you ever been watching a sporting event and seen an athlete's leg bend in a way that it's really just not supposed to bend? Man, uh, I found some images this week online. Be glad that I'm not showing you any of those because they are, (laughs) whoo, good grief. Um, It'll feel like your leg is broken just watching their leg be broken. And actually, looking at a photo of somebody smiling, just seeing the photograph of somebody smiling will cause the muscles in our own faces to involuntarily twitch ever so slightly in a smiling motion. We have the ability to feel what others are feeling. But empathy isn't a given. Okay, so in a recent article, American author Sochil Gonzalez notes that we have lost so many of our basic human connections in life. So think about this you're really hungry. You want some tacos, because tacos are going to hit this spot. You fire up an app, you order some carne asada, and you're just sitting there in the comfort of your living room. About 30 minutes later, no one rings the doorbell, no one knocks on your front door, but an app tells you that the tacos are waiting for you on the front porch. Beautiful. Amen? But consider this, you're eating delicious tacos without interacting with the human being who grew the food, with the human being who cooked the food, or assembled the food, or delivered the food. The tacos are just there, abracadabra. We can live most of our lives this way without actually seeing another person in real life. Why go to the office when you can Zoom from home? Why go to school when you can take classes online? Why get together with somebody in person when you can just text them whenever you want? Gonzalez notes that this lack of genuine connection has taken its toll on us. She argues that it's eroded our capacity to empathize with each other. We'll hear about things in the world. We'll hear about suffering. We'll hear about human trafficking. We'll hear about neglected children. We'll hear about people suffering from addiction. We'll hear about war in the Ukraine or between Hamas and Israel, and we might feel kind of bad for them, but we don't feel bad with them as often. Their suffering doesn't often actually touch us. And if the suffering of others doesn't touch us, then chances are we aren't going to care enough to help. In Deuteronomy 24, God commands the people to give justice to and provide food for the foreigners and the orphans and the widows. But God frames this command to care for others with a reminder. Deuteronomy 24, God says, always remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from your slavery, that is why I have given you this command. That is why, because you used to be slaves. Israel is supposed to help the most vulnerable among them because they were slaves. They knew what it was like to feel trapped. They knew what it was like to feel desperate. They could say, us too." And that kind of empathy is at play with Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. These two men had just helped a slave girl who was being exploited for her ability to tell the future. She was making her masters a lot of money for this ability, and she was also being tormented by an evil spirit. So Paul commands the spirit in the name of Christ Jesus to come out of the girl, and instantly the spirit leaves her. She is free. But no longer able to use this girl to make money, the masters seize Paul and Silas, and they bring him before the magistrates in verse 22, verse 20, and they say, these men are Jews. <laughs> Knock number one. These men are Jews, and they're throwing our city, our whole city, into an uproar. By advocating customs, unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Outraged, these guys take their Roman identity and they use it to gang up on these Jews. So a Roman Roman mob forms around them and they attack these two foreigners. Paul and Silas are stripped of their clothes. They're beaten with rods. They're thrown into prison. They're fastened into stocks. It's kind of a drastic change. One minute, Paul and Silas are walking around telling people about Jesus. They're freeing a young woman from bondage. And then the next moment, they're arrested. They're falsely accused. They're denied a fair trial. They're pummeled by rods, and they're thrown into prison. Get this. Paul and Silas are not only Jews. They're actually also Roman citizens. They knew their Roman citizenship gave them a special status. In Rome, it turns out, citizens were legally protected from this kind of abuse and brutality. Everyone else was legally objected to this kind of abuse and brutality. So in Rome, citizenship was an incredible form of privilege. And at any point, Paul and Silas could have protested. They could have said, we're citizens, and it would have stopped. No beatings, no suffering, no pain, no humiliation, all of that would have stopped. We're citizens, but they keep quiet. They endure this horrific, unjust punishment, the same punishments the other prisoners would have endured. Why would anyone do that? I think it's because they were disciples of Jesus. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, who it says in John 1.14, became flesh and decided to make his home among us. Jesus didn't stand at the top of the pit and look down on us with pity. He doesn't feel for us. He came into the pit so that he could feel with us. So, Sit with that for a second. Like God knows what it's like to be us. God has felt what we feel. God knows what it's like to make friends. And God knows what it's like to be alone and to be misunderstood and to be falsely accused. God knows what it's like to be beaten. God has celebrated at a wedding, as we so often do. God has wept at a funeral. God has knowledge an awareness and feeling of what it's like to die. God knows that. Joy and love, pain and betrayal, God knows all of this, and God knows all of it firsthand. It's miraculous. When Jesus became human and when Jesus made his home among us, God made our problem God's problem. God made our problem God's problem. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that... In him, we might become the righteousness of God. You know, it's one thing for a person to have pity on a prisoner from the other side of a fence. I feel sorry for you. But it's another thing entirely for a person to come into the prison and to live as the prisoners live. Awakened by Christ's compassion, right? Paul and Silas share the burden of the other prisoners. And these guys that share the burden with you, these guys are guys you will listen to So when they're praying, when they're singing hymns to God, you're listening to them because... Paul and Silas didn't exercise their privilege to avoid suffering. They suffered along with those who were suffering. They made the prisoners' problem their problem. So when the earthquake hit, it doesn't just free Paul and Silas, right? All at once, the prison doors fly open and everyone's chains come loose. As they shared the same suffering, they also shared in the same liberation. It was a powerful night overall. Even the jailer. Fell down before Paul and Silas and asked, What must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. So on that night, everyone guards, citizens, criminals, Jews, Romans they all shared an experience. They all shared the experience of God looking down at them and saying, I choose to dwell with you. I choose to dwell with you. And on that night, every single person in the jail was set free. It's amazing. And it all happens because Paul and Silas choose empathy. They choose to share in the suffering of another. And that's the power of empathy. It's something that we can do as well. I want to add some footnotes here about empathy. (laughs) For one, we have limits. We have limits. hate to inform you. We have limits. Caring deeply for others is pretty depleting. That's why uh, one of the reasons why people who work for charities, who work in animal shelters, who work in... Charities are in hospitals and schools, they experience burnout and turnover at really high rates in society because they're caring for people. Caring for too long and caring too much can wipe us out. Second, sometimes we will bump into a guy who also has twins, and we will be able to relate to them immediately. But other times, our ability to connect with people is limited, and we can't actually presume to know what other people are feeling. For example, I will never understand what it feels like to be the youngest child in the family because I'm the oldest child in my family. I'll never fully understand what it means like, what it feels like to be a person of color because I'm white, or a woman because I'm a man. And tossing out, I know how you feel, (laughs) is really tempting to do. Like, I know how you feel. But that's not something that we should say very lightly, right? It's at best presumptive, and at most, it's likely harmful. I know how you feel. With that said, if we are willing to get down into the pit with another person, I think that we can relate to them. I've never lost a dog, but I've been sad. I've been lonely. I've been afraid. Connecting through that shared feeling can motivate us, and it can help us put love into action. Take Paul and Silas. When the magistrates learned that they'd messed up, that they'd abused a Roman citizen, they wanted to keep the whole misunderstanding a secret. Don't tell anybody that we messed up. Paul doesn't let them. Verse 37, he says this. They beat us publicly without a trial. Even though we're Roman citizens, they threw us into prison. Now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Not only did Paul and Silas enter the pit and suffer with those prisoners, they used their privilege, they used their citizenship to expose the injustice of the whole criminal justice system that they were part of. The whole Roman criminal justice system that treated some people as if they were different than other people. Empathy, feeling with others, is a really essential part of our faith. Empathy creates connection, and that connection alone can dramatically improve a situation. That us two on that plane meant so much to me. It made me feel at ease and encouraged my heart. But it doesn't have to stop there with that connection. It can also motivate us to put love into action, like Paul and Silas did, to make someone else's problem our problem too. And there are a lot of gigantic problems in the world. We've been talking about them this whole series, series, including our own criminal justice system. Parentheses, please read, please read, Just Mercy by Bryan Stevenson. It exposes some of the injustices in our criminal justice system, especially for those that have mental disabilities or those who are minors in the system. So, out of parentheses. Throughout this series, we have been looking at gigantic problems in this world. But we've also been trying to draw our focus down to the neighborhood level, to the people that we interact with on a daily basis. And that's where I want to go this morning with two final words of encouragement regarding empathy. First, I encourage you to connect with someone this week, to connect with a human being this week in a genuine way. This doesn't have to be dramatic or enormous or huge. I'm talking about making a phone call instead of sending a text or writing a post. I'm talking about arranging for an in-person conversation over a cup of coffee. I'm talking about even making small talk with someone in line as you're waiting to pick up the food that you went to go get in person instead of having delivered to your front door. So in some way this week, I challenge each of us to immerse ourselves in the life and experiences of another human being that's near us. Ask questions of this person. Get a sense of what it's like to be them. So swap the phrases. Instead of, I know how you feel, tell me more. Instead of, I know how you feel, like, tell me more. Honestly, I I think it's pretty challenging to empathize with people. I think it's actually especially challenging to empathize with the people closest to us, the people that we see all the time. We assume that we know them, so that we don't really actually have to listen to them very much anymore. So Megan, my spouse, when she's really fired up about something, I actually tend to instinctively go in the opposite direction from her. So if she's really fired up, then i want to balance the scales and provide another perspective. I'm not actually feeling with her, I'm not actually connecting with her, I'm pushing back. And this is where I think following Jesus makes a concrete difference in our capacity to empathize. First, we know that when we trust in Christ, this new life is born inside of us, right? Like this thing is changed in our inner being. A new life is born, and over time, God makes that life in us grow, and we become more and more like Christ. God does that work inside of us. He's changing us. And we actually can cooperate with that transformation, We can, as Ephesians 4 says, we can throw off our old sinful nature. We can throw off our former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception, and instead we can let the Spirit renew our thoughts and attitudes. We can put on our new natures, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. We can contribute to our transformation. We can participate in it. Often this is by cultivating spiritual practices. This is prayer. This is worship. This is being in community. This is fasting. This is like what we're doing right here, gathering together. Still, even as we grow, even as God changes our hearts and makes us different, we will have limits. Our limits remain. If you fill a balloon with too much air, it will eventually burst. But I think that in Christ, our balloons can hold a little bit more air than they could without Christ. And if they do burst, if we do get overwhelmed by all the things, which, let's be real, happens all the time, I think the Spirit of Christ heals our hearts and puts us back together with grace, often producing in us even actually more resilience, and more capacity. This is what David was talking about last week, that God will use even the messiest parts of all of our stories for good. In addition to expanding our capacity, Christ is with us in those moments of connection. When we're talking to each other in conversation, Jesus is actually there in the midst of that interaction. There's actually a small amount of time. Uh, my spiritual director told me it was one quarter of one second. One second there's a small amount of time, one quarter of one second, that exists between, in the space between stimulus and response. So if something happens, I respond. There's actually a one quarter of one second moment embedded in there. When Megan tells me she's frustrated, there's a quarter of a second of blank space just before I react. Before knee-jerking to fixing or getting defensive or pushing back with a different perspective, that one quarter of one second holds space. And in that space is already Jesus. Jesus is already present to us in that space. It's enough space for me to pray really quickly. There's enough space for me to remember Jesus and to remember that Jesus crawled into this pit with me, enough space for the Spirit to help me join Megan in whatever pit she's experiencing. So I could say something like, you're right, that is super annoying. I can't believe that happened. That is totally, totally messed up. is actually what she needs me to say in that moment. That might not be my only response, But in that moment, rather than denying or criticizing, I'm sitting in these feelings with her, agreeing with her as the feelings run their course. And after those feelings have been felt by both of us, after sitting in the pit together, it's actually a huge difference in the ways that we respond together to whatever thing we're facing. Quarter of one second. So, who can you connect with this week? Who can you connect with this week? Remember, at one point, your closest friends were strangers to you, and every stranger is a potential friend to you. And I'm trusting that even in this moment, the Holy Spirit is bringing a person to mind for you. Who is the Spirit bringing to mind for you? Who can you connect with this week? Awakened by Christ's compassion, you're not just standing at the top of a pit and looking down at someone. With God's help, we can make an effort to feel with them. And once you've done that, once you've put some love into action, you can actually make someone else's problem your problem. Takeaway number two. Connect with somebody, takeaway one. Takeaway two, consider making someone else's problem actually your problem, too. You don't need to commit a crime and become a prisoner. <laughs> don't even say that. But you can identify with the person facing a problem and decide to enter that situation to help address that problem. Bind their well being to your well being. Make them one and the same. Maybe you know a kid who's struggling in school, and you can be her tutor, and you can celebrate her successes, and you can invest in her intellectual growth. A few years ago, an Afghan family moved into our area, and two people from our church invested in this family and made their problems their problems. We even worked with a dentist to provide the four free sessions needed to to correct all of the painful cavities that these folks were experiencing free of charge. Just one small example of a way to make someone's problem your problem. There are a million problems in this world, and I'm encouraging you to think about and to find one that you actually truly care about. Like, it's convicting on your own heart. Like, what's something out there that's happening that you can make your problem to address? Not all at once. I'm talking about a long game. This is a long and slow and patient and wise process as we put love into action. And why do we do this? Like, why do we do this? Because we used to be slaves. Because we used to be trapped. Because we used to be desperate. And when we were in the deepest pit, even in the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord was right there with us. And the Lord offered us the assurance that he was with us. So, in that assurance, awakened by Christ's compassion, we share one one another's burdens and we put love into action. In solidarity with those around us. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for you and your presence with us. Not only did you come into this world as a human being and experience everything that we experience and take all of that to the cross with you to restore and to redeem and to heal, but you promised that you are actually still with us. You say that you will never leave us. You tell us that you will never leave us. You have not left us. You are with us. And it's in that promise and that assurance and that comfort, Lord, that we come to you this morning longing to see the way that you see, longing to have the same kind of compassion, the same kind of solidarity, the same kind of spirit that you have. It's by your grace, Lord, not by our efforts. We cannot do this alone. We need you to do it for us, with us, in us. In cooperation with you, Lord, we ask for your grace to make someone else's problem ours and to connect with someone else this week, even as you connect with us today.